Good day. This is Michael Muse of Going Global International Interviews. Uh, today we're talking again with uh, Jeff Castleman, the founder and president of Optimize, the real estate technology company. Um, we're talking with Jeff today about security advancements and technology durability in Asia. Uh, if you'd like to see edited transcripts, they're available at intlalliances.com and midwestbusiness.com. I believe we are going to go and um, as I we reviewed about on the first page okay. and gotten down to uh, we talked about broad, broadband becoming standard amenity for commercial industrial tenants. Okay. So moving right along. Um, how are local entrepreneurs benefiting from all the advancements you saw on your trip in Asia? Local to Asia or local to United? Local to Asia. How are they benefiting from these advancements? Um, each place that we visited has a different focus. Mm -hmm. uh, none of them are as comprehensive in each and every subcomponent of what we consider these hard buildings uh, to be maximizing or, or optimizing uh, their efforts. Mm -hmm. For instance, in Japan, it's about precision mm -hmm. and it's about energy efficiency. And so, um, okay, how about any other places? Uh, in uh, South Korea, uh, in Seoul, it's about uh, R&D, and it's about a digital lifestyle. Mm -hmm. They're living the most complete digital lifestyle than constantly living in, uh, in every conceivable aspect, commercial, residential, other. Okay, now those are kind of a macro thing, but how about at the entrepreneurial level? In other words, obviously I've got to believe the faster connectivity helps, you know, what other kinds of things are helping small, growing, emerging companies? in the different places that you visited. Or can you say that? No, it would be impossible for us to say. There are a lot of dynamics different than ours because of the government participation that we wouldn't benefit from here. And they do it as a means of being equal to everybody else, not being ahead of everybody else. They wouldn't do these things any other way because everyone else is doing it. If they don't do these, then they're not competitive. So, uh, our observation was that, commercially speaking, for to achieve leasing metrics, either high rents or high occupancy rates or, or whatever you choose to dwell on, these are bare minimums that they're doing. Why would you do it in a way, mentality, not we need to do this to get ahead? Okay, but in other words, though, it sounds like bare minimums are exceeding a lot of the more advanced stuff going on here. And have for at least three others. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, in other the competitors they're comparing themselves to are local Asian competitors and not competitors here in North America. For the most part, we did see one property in Seoul called Digital Media City, and they were marketing themselves by comparing themselves to other massive, mixed-use, multi-purpose commercial developments that are springing up in other geographic locations that include uh, elsewhere in Korea, excuse me, Hong Kong, uh, Malaysia, and I believe China, if I remember the chart right. So they are taking a more regionalized view of something to look at their project. They're likely to look regionally at all these other projects. And therefore, they're not only comparing themselves against local real estate alternatives, but regional. Mm -hmm. And that's a fairly 
large range of broad geographic distance within that range. Oh, sure. Um, okay, now, in your article, you mentioned that they expect these technologies to last 50 years. But I think a lot of these technologies today are usually outdated in three to five years. How can they make the claim of 50 years and make it stick? Well, one, one example is the digital signage strategies that are employed at the property. Uh, by having the appropriate infrastructure in place and having the uh, appropriate hardware in place, digitized signage which can be used for directional purposes, advertising purposes, fire like safety purposes, emergency announcements, uh, they can be uh, flashed autonomously, individually, or in a coordinated test of all the other signage in the property uh, will withstand the test and easily be there the way a wall sign can be outside a front door or a power room. Well, well, okay, and yeah. all they'll ever have to change, perhaps, is the hardware, the interface, uh, that supports, for instance, the LED display, is better than a plasma display. Well, for example, you increase the resolution. Right, you increase the resolution of the higher power density or any other thing. You're swapping out the lowest cost component of the system. Uh, and therefore, it has the ability to, to, uh, to offer sustainability and flexibility at the same time. The constant that most people are operating in this world is that the only constant itself is the change that they'll encounter, which is the point. Okay, so. Is this stuff lasting 50 years really realistic or a shorter time frame? Okay, you're four hours. You know, some of the sustainability and flexibility that we saw are fire waves, grinding walls, that are on track for wheels, that are all scale, all tackle. Is it a thing that you see in the end? You see, right, that those according doors or those. Wall system unattractive. You couldn't place things on the wall. You couldn't penetrate the wall for nails to hang things on. You wouldn't want a smart book on there or a plasma TV on there. Uh, they completely re-engineered these wall systems uh, uh, so that you can change the configuration and dimensions of your space over a weekend. That's something that's designed to give space the ability to last more uh, in, in endurance. Uh, it's 50 years, and it's 30 years, and it's 20 years, so they come up with something better between now and then. I got two years left to see. In your article, you also mentioned that golf courses, parks, schools, retailers, hotels, convention centers, stadiums are all connected. Um, is that simply via the internet, or is there something more than that? They're really not building individual buildings. Mm -hmm. They're building a legitimate community. Mm -hmm. And all the items you just identified are subcomponents mm -hmm. of a community ecosystem. Mm -hmm. They're building ecosystems or communities. They're building a place that people will seek out as a place they want to spend the bulk of their time at. Mm -hmm. And that will have all that they need for them to the bulk of the time there. Mm -hmm. And so regarding their connectivity though, is it simply internet connectivity or are there other things behind 
those communities and ecosystems? Oh, they're all master planned and master developed as a single development. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in terms of the master plan, how does that address the technological aspect? Well, they're very focused on, on all the automation, process automation, system automation, uh, energy efficiency, uh, and the connectivity components of those. So there's a strategy for each of those mm -hmm. uh, that all interact with one another and they're all tied together you know, this one central operating command center, uh, if you will, okay. uh, for that development. Gotcha. And that development can span miles and acres and, and, and have 50, 100,000 people ultimately residing there or passing through there in the course of the day. Mm -hmm. so, just FYI, um, the company that I'm working with, our boss, just got back from a trip to Shanghai, mm -hmm. told me about a commercial park that he visited, which is 60 square miles. That's pretty mind-boggling. And it's a, it's a new realm of dynamic, you know, when you come to think about how you, how a single operator manages that park. Provide yeah. security to it, provide connectivity to it, provide fire safety services, uh, does, um, uh, bulk purchasing to maximize their time at the scale, it changes all the dynamics. Uh, I mean, number one, to build it is a huge task. Number two, to manage it on an ongoing basis is a huge task. Um, okay. Um, now, in looking at uh, some of the things that uh, Realcom um, addressed on the trip, talk about automated security systems, but how can you have security with no guards? Is that possible? No, we wouldn't recommend uh, eliminating any human uh, component or resource to it. Mm -hmm. uh, what we would advocate is a reallocation of the human element to complement and counterbalance uh, the technological aspects of it. Uh, rather than having 50 security staff on site, perhaps you only need a dozen. And the other 38 can be redeployed either at the central command center and retrained computer technicians and monitor uh, evaluation techs, um, or can be shifted to other properties within the portfolio that still tie back into the command center, mm -hmm. um, uh, and they complement that with uh, wireless uh, video surveillance. Uh, biometric security components such as uh, fingerprint scans, uh, iris scans, some uh, of voice recognition. Um, it all depends on, on what the deal is back for your, for your property. Uh, I will also say that uh, the guards are not uh, stationed at a computer head desk or behind a secret wall or in a secret basement chamber where they're monitoring video feeds, they're actually walking around with advanced handouts uh, that are getting 30 frames per second wireless video feeds. So not only are they roving security, but they're getting real-time video surveillance uh, 
however you program that to occur, either through a series of feeds uh, that rotate or uh, through uh, one steady feed because it's responsible for one particular piece of the property. Uh, and it's about a whole new level of security uh, that they couldn't before, and they can save money in, in their plan. And so, in other words, if a space you visited in Asia, they're already using biometrics, voice recognition, uh, some of the other technologies you mentioned, or are they planning on implementing those in the future? They're already using them. Mm -hmm. uh, they've all been using fingerprint uh, recognition, biometric fingerprint security for the last three to five years, and the new the newest systems are using a combination of fingerprint and uh, iris scan mm -hmm. uh, to get access to the most critical or secure areas. Gotcha. Okay. Um, in the articles that I've read, you've mentioned that homes are integrated with workplaces. How so? Or why would anybody want to have their work life that closely integrated with their home life? Uh, there's really two forces at work there. Number one is uh, a limitation on the geographic or on the geography uh, that proves to be buildable at all for any purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're combining multiple purposes in a single location uh, and then putting a, uh, a transportation hall or network underneath. And so now it's a question of getting people to or from uh, with enough critical mass uh, to justify staying there long enough to, in terms of by building it. Um, so number one is, is the geographic, um, there's only so much buildable uh, land that isn't too rocky or the terrain isn't too uh, steep um, for them to be able to build uh, any kind of property. Um, so in other words, in places like Korea, Japan, I can see that they are geographically constrained. There are other places like in China where do they have those same constraints? In a central business district, the CBD environment like Beijing or Shanghai, uh, there was quite advanced uh, mixed use dynamics at work. Uh, I'm sure if you look further out uh, into the, the periphery or even into the, uh, the rural areas of China, there would be no reason I could see uh, necessarily build places like that. Um, but the other dynamic, regardless of location, this includes the United States, is that <coughs> building a single-purpose building, commercially speaking, that's going to produce activity and therefore revenue for eight hours of a 24-hour day is going to be an inferior investment asset to that of a commercial uh, real estate vehicle that is active 18 hours a day and therefore generating two times the amount of revenue or acted 24 hours a day and therefore generating three times the amount of revenue. Um, and the way that that is happening is by combining uses in a single location. The energy circuit isn't going away. Okay, but okay. energy is used 24 hours in a day. However, can you really get more than 18 to 20 hours of revenue out of a property per day? Sure. Sure. During, uh, because I mean, it seems to me from midnight to six in the morning, there's not a lot of Well, your revenue driver is your residential. Okay. In the hotel. So actually, you do have 24 7 revenue. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess I was thinking of kind of ancillary things to those, in other words, you know, restaurants, food stores, you know, all the other stuff. That's sort of the second uh, way. Yeah. You know, the, the, the first way is the office, the second way is retail entertainment, mm-hmm. and the third way is whatever other yeah. hotel can be carved out of a standalone or it can be lumped together with residential, and residential could be condos or it could be apartments. And you found that people you spoke with on your travels were happy with living and working in such close proximity. Because I do think some people like distance or a change between the two. We did then meet a fair amount of people in Korea who lived in very small flats, 600 square feet, 800 square feet, seemed to be warm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a physical space allocated to, for instance, the whole office, mm-hmm. where they could go from the bedrooms to the kitchen, uh, past the living room, into their home office, uh, and be affected during the day. Um, they preferred to leave their homestead uh, in favor of an office space. Uh, but the places they were going to were not eight-hour office buildings, uh, but rather uh, offices that were tied into public transportation networks that also offered uh, retail entertainment in our hotel outlets. Uh, but they needed more than just an office building uh, to go to. Uh, they also understand that uh, with the advent of truly ubiquitous computing, which I think we talked about last time, we really can do anything anywhere, anytime, uh, go to a single purpose office space, one that seems one of the ways they've already moved past that, that metric. Yeah, and just, I mean, if I think about it, I just don't know. Yeah, this concept would work as well here right now simply because, you know, granted people don't like the long commutes, which I don't know if they want to live and work in the building next door. I mean, I work out of my home. I work out of night. So just trying to kind of figure out the dynamics. I think it's a cluster effect that you'll see where uh, mixed-use properties offering different subcomponents that complement the mixed-use property across the street and down the block and you can do a peer in tandem or in close proximity to one another, uh, where one has the super transportation hub and the others will have to also build a super transportation hub, but they all share in that amenity. Um, and now we would consider that one community, even though four or five different buildings, each offering some overlap with some different element of their next use existence. I think that's really where it's headed, but it's an evolution that will take years to, to get to that kind of well, well, it's just, I think in my neighborhood, you know, if I were wirelessly enabled for me to simply go down to Starbucks and work, it's kind of a central gathering place where a lot of people in a similar situation are doing the same thing. So, so we might not be as far along in that curve. I, I do agree with you, but, but you just reinforced the whole concept, which is you're seeking community. Yeah. Starbucks is a community you have to be seeking, and when you find one that can do better, and for a better value proposition, chances are you migrate to that other community. Yeah, and just find a Starbucks that you choose to do that. And if it's up to me, that other community will also have a Starbucks. It's just well. Yeah, we're the whole. You also mentioned a, an instance where they demonstrated paying a vending machine via cell phone. Right. Why do you think it's picked up in other places and not here? I think there's some, some bureaucratic domains in the United States um, that those that are in control of the wanting to let, let go off for economic purposes. Uh, specifically, such as? Well, number one, I, I think that uh, 
the retail revenue stream that accrues to the vending machine supplier, the person that's filled with whether it's soda or candy or other, uh, receives a proportionate share, uh, the, the lion's share, I should say, of the revenue that's derived from each incremental sale, each incremental uh, as soon as you go to a telephone-based uh, wireless system, you're yielding the lion's share of the revenue stream to the telephone operator. And you happen to become a supplier to the telephone company or the communications company. Uh, because the way the system that we observed works, uh, it costs 75 cents, no different than if you had plugged the vending machine with coins um, or used your credit card. Uh, but in this case, you use your telephone and it showed up on your telephone e-bill, which came through the internet over email, uh, as a 75 cent additional charge to your telephone bill. In which case, the telephone company collects it and then shells out a portion of that back to the vending machine operator, um, but they keep the line sure So the question in the United States is who controls that economic domain and are they willing to share it on any kind of formula yeah. or are they willing to try to control it as long or for, for you know, in perpetuity or for as long as they possibly can. Uh, Excuse me then. How are the costs for the system that you saw allocated? In other words, does the revenue model that you're describing in Asia more accurately reflect the cost, or does the, the revenue model that you describe here in the state more accurately reflect the cost? Because I think the assumption is if you buy something out of a vending machine, most of what you're paying for is the candy bar or the chips or the soda. But it sounds like from what you're saying, that's really not the case, because here in the States we're paying, paying more for the telecom, and in Asia, a little different or some, somehow else. And get or or well, the, does the cost structure even matter? Well, the it cost matters to the end user and to the consumer. And to the consumer, the cost is the same in both places. Okay. Um, who gets what component or subcomponent of that total unit cost mm-hmm. is really what's on the table. Um, and I can't speak for every last penny of how it's allocated in either place. Okay. Well, so in other words, though, do you know if the telcos are operating differently in Asia to make this work than our telcos here in America? That has been told to us. I mean, we haven't done any verification of that, but that's exactly how things work. Okay. Good to um, You mentioned Digital Media City in Seoul before. Um, saw Cyber Giant in Malaysia. What kind of companies are working in these new complexes? Well, Digital Media City for me to have any tenants. Okay. Um, although I will say that we visited a year ago and it was land being primed for construction. Uh, when we visited it last month, instead of the exact, exact same spot, I would estimate that 25 to 30 buildings of 20 to 30 stories uh, were fully erected and framed, although not yet ready for occupancy. And that was just a one year's time. Um, the balance of the site 
have been further partitioned and, and prepped for additional construction uh, in the marketing center and added some bells and whistles. Um, but there are no users to speak of yet. Well, do you know if the proposed tenants are going to be big companies, smaller entrepreneurial companies, incubators, technology companies, non-technology companies? They're targeting uh, digital media content companies. And they're very interested in aggregating like-minded thinking users. Mm -hmm. They would sort of like to be the highway gaming center of Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of the peripheral uses and support uh, businesses uh, that would come along with that. Uh, they're really not interested in having a corporate uh, regional, you know, uh, Pan-Pacific or Asia-Pacific regional office there for the sake of being there uh, at this time. They're really looking for users who fall in a specific realm. Uh, CyberChaya is differently. CyberChaya uh, is, is uh, currently housing pretty much every major multinational company that you can think of, from Microsoft and, and IBM to FedEx and DHL. Uh, they're all physically uh, present either in CyberChaya or TechaChaya or uh, the peripheral Okay. Um, now that there's tons of opportunities in digital media, Cyberjaya, Asia, places you visited, are there any opportunities for local companies to participate, either from an export basis, um, something they can sell to these people, partner with, contract with, anything else? I don't think it's always obvious, but I do think uh, that there are all kinds of opportunities. I think uh, the easiest ones are, are the travel opportunities that we ourselves have become enamored of. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the learning opportunities. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there are uh, construction uh, expertise related, not general contracting, but, but niche contracting and expertise-driven uh, fields that aren't necessarily uh, uh, deep in their uh, alternatives or resources. Uh, so partnering, uh, once you get to lay the land. Um, well, so you talk about niche construction expertise, per se. What specific niches do you think of? Oh, it could be, uh, you know, a, a higher, high and kind of carpentry, you know, cotton molding, for instance, or it could be uh, and it's hard to say. It could be it's so there's no specific networking kind of thing because uh, they've got that covered locally. Or, um, it, it's most likely going to be a service rather than a product export mm -hmm. uh, for cost reasons, but uh, I think there's all kinds of service opportunities uh, over there uh, that start with uh, parachuting in and or delving in and uh, doing the homework and getting the lay of the land uh, from somebody who's on the ground. Um, and I think all kinds of light bulbs will, will start popping, popping up like they did for us. Uh, I think it's inevitable. Uh, 
So I do think there's all kinds of opportunities, but I don't think they're going to be obvious. I don't think they're going to find people unless they're out looking for them. Okay. Um, guys, you saw a lot. It's very impressive you were over there. Where do you plan on taking and implementing what you've learned there? We've been studying uh, different uh, components and dynamics of uh, American cities uh, in hopes of finding uh, what we consider to be the most digitally competent or uh, visually driven community in the United States. Uh, when we think of the reception to the kind of property we'd like to build will be better than it would be in other places. Um, we've been studying things like uh, per capita computer use, uh, broadband uh, utilization and access, uh, e-government initiatives, um, political stability, uh, educational trends, uh, so that we can track the next wave of digital generation. Um, net population gain or loss. If people are moving out of this place uh, with enough magnitude or, or enough masses, uh, is it the right place to, uh, to put a building like this? Uh, or are they attracting the digital generation, uh, those that are just graduating from college or, or postgraduate studies? Is it a place that appeals to them or, or not? They also actually look at leather. Uh, uh, we also look at uh, traditional real estate dynamics that are non-technology driven, such as where they are in the real estate cycle, uh, the availability of the type of properties uh, that we're looking for. I think there's a lot of readers who might not be familiar with the typical real estate cycle. I mean, is it, in other words, earlier you talked about, you know, leases renewing 5, 10, 20 years. Is that the cycle you're referring to? No, no, it's it's uh, it's a it's a, a market driven supply and demand cycle. Um, if the market in balance or out of balance, is there uh, more demand than there is supply? Is there equilibrium or balance, or is there uh, more supply? Uh, is there any more supply and less demand? Mm-hmm. A soft market. Uh, you know, the concept there is to buy low and sell high. Um, so you definitely want to study that. You also want to follow interest rates. You also want to follow uh, development, uh, what you want to zoning laws and entitlement, the entitlement process, and the degree of ease or difficulty in being able to achieve a complex development of this nature. All those things are being studied, um, and, and it's narrowed down a list uh, to places like uh, Austin, Texas, um, Chicago, uh, Boston, San Diego, Orange County, Silicon Valley, San Diego, Denver, Minneapolis, Washington, the greater Washington, D.C. area. Those types of communities, that's not a complete list, but that's a very representative list of the types of communities that and we have a hundred plus uh, field matrix of, of things that we're, we're tracking. Uh, and those are the ones that tend to score well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in other words, though, it's not like you're talking about big cities. In other words, not small little communities, you know, Vail, Aspen, 
um, you know, smaller places that in some cases are known for being high-tech centers, lots of uh, uh, telecommuters, so on and so on. For the most part, that's true, although um, Chicago, for instance, loses points because of its market size, you know, because of projects of this type, uh, in our opinion, would uh, be a, a small fish in a very big pond and may be overlooked or, 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 uh, or forgotten about relatively quickly, whereas in a city like Austin, uh, which is still a major city, but on the next wall and a ladder down, uh, this would be considered to be a relatively speaking, a big fish in a, in a smaller pond, where its viability and success will be more fostered uh, by the local uh, community uh, in any local government. So uh, we prefer the latter to the former, but Chicago has enough interesting things going for it. For instance, that could be a great place uh, for this building to be considered called Chicago. Um, and are you talking specifically about one building, or a larger community similar to what you saw in Asia. We've been invited to Fort Worth, of all places, uh, tomorrow Wednesday to evaluate a 71-acre parcel of land in the city of Fort Worth uh, that would be a campus as opposed to a single freestanding building. Uh, for uh, this concept uh, to be developed on site, so it requires some tweaking and, and some customization. Uh, but it, it, it lends itself to either a freestanding one-off building or a, a collection of buildings or, or a campus. Mm-hmm. Um, we've even kind of up a, a suburban model, if you will, um, although we don't want that to be the first project. It's, mm-hmm. well, it's, a, it's a different animal in itself, in and of itself. I mean, you're referring to a specific concept or project, and I'm not sure people know exactly what you're referring to. In other words, what is it you want to build? We want to build a mixed-use, live-work-play commercial community that has several subcomponents. It would have uh, office space, although our vision of viable future office space is different than the office space that we we see today. Uh, it would have uh, work, live, condominiums and apartments where you could both work and live in the same space if you chose to. Uh, you would have um, retail, um, you have entertainment, and restaurants and uh, uh, and other uh, entertainment driven venues. Uh, you would have uh, a hotel or a place to stay overnight. Uh, and you would have a, uh, a transportation hub uh, on site or nearby to move the people to and from the site uh, with efficiency. Uh, those would be the different use components of the project. Okay. Interesting. Um, now, Earlier, I believe you also said that this is a worldwide effort. And I'm just curious, where else can you see these kinds of things growing in the world? Well, um, an interesting thing that's happened to us as we've uh, spent a couple of years doing research, and that is that the hotspots that you see on the map in any given snapshot, whether it's in the United States or other parts of the world, 
have multiplied and gotten bigger and have created a larger field of overlap. And that's going to keep happening. Um, before this project gets built, um, you'll see regionalized zones of hotspots, not just Starbucks and local libraries. Um, and when that happens, uh, it takes a lot of the digital dynamics that we've been seeking away because it supports the concept that demand will be everywhere. Uh, everybody, everywhere, sooner or later, will adjust to this paradigm of the dynamic that this has become norm, and they expect this wherever they go, suburban, urban, rural, or otherwise. Yeah, excuse me, just so we're clear. When you say hotspots, you mean specifically Wi-Fi hotspots and not just potential hotspots for your project um, in the cities that we were just talking about. Actually, I don't. Um, Wi-Fi hotspots is the easiest thing to envision when we talk about hotspots. What we're talking about are uh, clusters or, or critical mass pockets of digital users. Yeah, okay. Um, it's the way you describe it, kind of sounds like sure. no, it's a good question. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a good question. Uh, but all the Wi-Fi hotspots do factor in somewhere somehow. Anyone, any place there's a Wi-Fi hotspot, if there's a digitally driven user benefiting from existence, we're going to be there in theory. Um, so that does play into account. But the same thing's happening, there's no mushrooming, mushrooming effect. It, it's happening all over the world. Um, we've had uh, opportunities uh, to pursue projects in the UK, Dubai, Korea, and China, all of which uh, we felt were premature uh, or too remote to be proven as our first project. We really feel our first project needs to be domestic. And have you looked at any place in Scandinavia? No, but we are planning to sit there in the next 30 to 50 days. Okay. We're progressing there. I that. Yeah. Um, I agree. And I guess coming back to some of the things that I saw earlier, you mentioned building control centers. Do they exist here in the U.S.? Do you see them in the future here in the U.S.? They're absolutely not here now, and they absolutely are coming soon. Uh, we did see one uh, here in Chicago. Uh, it's not being operated as a uh, building control center, but could easily be modified to be a building control center and be run by any phase. Mm -hmm. Do you know any phase? Yes. Yeah. These people. Michigan guys. Yeah. Yeah. We were lucky enough to get a tour of his facility at the GATX building. And he's on my list here as well. Great. He's another international guy. He's another guy that I want to talk with about his company that we're using. And when we're done here, I'd like to mention a little bit about him. Yeah, that's good. Uh, he gets it, and he built it to service uh, a particular customer and then realized uh, he had built it in such a way that he could service multiple customers as long as they were aware of each other and okay with each other using the same infrastructure. Uh, that is exactly uh, the genesis that will lead to building operations, command centers uh, of the future. Um, it's the back end or the invisible side uh, of real estate development um, that completes the picture. So it's just a matter of time. It's coming. Okay, and I guess we're building control fast. At least a little bit of Big Brother looking over your shoulder. 
Is there any danger there, or why shouldn't people be worried about that danger? I think one bad apple can always spoil a bunch of apples. Um, you can't ever fully eliminate that concern, no matter what you do or how you deploy it, uh, because if you have one bad cog in the system, it really will uh, you know, affect the rest of the system and those that benefit from its existence or operation. Um, but uh, I think it's been proven time and time again uh, that uh, the same features that could uh, be used uh, in a negative way can also be used in a positive way with protocols and, and procedures uh, and policy uh, in place to ensure uh, that uh, every conceivable uh, safeguard or, or, or safety measure is being put in place for the, for the benefit of those that are on the system or using the system. And I don't see this being any different. But I mean, one thing that I kind of harp on in that column is just, you know, it's not the system, the product, or the process, it's how you manage it. And it's not like it's just not a case that way. Well, when I put, let me, let me just, here's a simplistic manifestation of it. If you have two roving security officers in it, probably. Let's just say they're uh, off duty to the Chicago police. They're very good and capable of what they do. Uh, but they can only call, cover so much ground between 8 p.m. and 4 a.m. when no one else is on site. Uh, and while they're over on this part of the property, somebody smashes the window of a parked car and steals the stereo or whatever other content might be in the car. Eventually, Probably within just a few minutes, that roving security officer will find that car, will find the broken window, uh, and will report it, and the process will proceed from there. But what you didn't do is prevent, prevent the staff of the breakage from occurring. If you uh, supplement the two guys roving with handheld, real-time, wireless video feeds from the front of the property, not only might you catch it in action and prevent it from happening, but even if you still don't do that, you've got a historical record of it taking place and you can see who it was, uh, exactly what time it occurred, how it was perpetrated, and your chances of either uh, eliminating that from happening or prosecuting those who did it are up exponentially. So it, it really can be a good thing. As long as two people are, are operating the system, I'm attention. Okay. Um, I mean, we've got to get the power, I guess. You know, to kind of address that. Um, some of the stuff you're talking about sounds kind of far out. How long do you think it's going to take to implement these kinds of things? Two or three years. Uh, we're aware of several other groups who are uh, currently pursuing. Uh, some significant aspect of our pursuit, and we're actually trying to help one another uh, while we compete. Um, although we're guarded with our own vision into the, the, the details and the, the execution components of it, uh, because it's ours and, and not theirs, um, and we think it's different enough and more comprehensive and more complete enough uh, that there's room in the market for all of us. Uh, but we're all actively pursuing something comparable. Um, and whether it's new construction or whether uh, an existing building is purchased and renovated, 
by the time it's delivered to the marketplace, as soon as I see it is, you know, it's 18 months, two years, uh, and in the case of new construction, it's three, three to four years away from having it, but it's coming. All right, well, you mentioned that you're, you've got competitors, essentially, and you're collaborating with your competitors, but how many people are looking at this? Is it a lot of them, or just a few? I'm aware of about a thousand groups. Okay. Uh, some quite substantial, capable, some uh, in startup and, and entrepreneurial uh, mode, uh, or simply hoping to latch on to a bigger, more robust partnership or, or organization. But in some way, shape, or form, uh, there are several people looking at it. Cool. You also mentioned that the dollar figure that you're looking to fund is $100 million. Where do you hope to get that investment from? We, uh, we actually think that number is probably closer to $250 million at this point in time. Uh, as the model has evolved, um, and you get all those different uses together in one place in the time, which suggests you have a fairly valuable piece of property. Uh, with a fairly substantial build-out. I and mean, again, it, it, it will vary with renovation versus new construction, but both are, are going to cost you a pretty good buck. Excuse me, when you say size, well, are we talking about a square mile, a city block? Um, our prototype is 250 to 350,000 square feet uh, of total space. Um, you got $100 a foot at 350,000 feet. That's a $350 million We have several offers uh, from several significant, substantial organizations uh, to fund 100% of our equity requirements and some of our debt requirements. But we have not yet determined whether the partner was one entity or multiple entities, and we have not yet determined what the fair value proposition is to both parties, and therefore has yet to commit to anybody, and then to us. Now, the second reason I ask this question, and I'm sure it's of interest to readers, is financing an emerging business is very different from financing a real estate venture. Are there any parallels or differences that you think would be helpful for a guy who's starting a software company to face it or whatever? I mean, some of the things you just mentioned are very appropriate. But, in other words, there are lucky people are looking for 500000 bucks, a million dollars for them. $100 million, $300 million is kind of unfathomable. Is there any way that we can compare them and make any sense? No, I think whatever project you pursue, there is a better and a worse process and there is a starting end point and there are several time-tested aspects to it um, that any good investor or good entrepreneur or anyone with a good uh, sense of business uh, would extend to anybody. So of course there's parallels. Um, I think you have to operate in a, in a sphere or a realm in which you're comfortable. Uh, so what's your tolerance for risk? You know, risk aversion. Uh, number two, um, knowing your competition intimately mm -hmm. and not casually. Uh, I would say number three, uh, determining what the value proposition is both for you and your prospective partners. 
whether they're passive or active partners, whether they're dead or equity partners. Um, and lastly, who owns the intellectual capital that comes from the project? Definitively, who owns it? Okay. Yeah, we were talking about terminology a little bit earlier. The term IT gets thrown around a lot. And for some people, it's intellectual property. For others, it can be internet protocol. And so, I mean, here we're talking about intellectual property, obviously. Sometimes that term, that's the idea, and the other people, I gotta remember who I'm talking with. Same is true with the terminology next gen. There are those who suggest that they coined it first and not own it. Uh, how much do we have if you were using for hotspots? Same thing. I think you were using for the last of the next gen conversation. Oh, okay. Um, now just getting more of what else? You brought back a lot of stuff. <laughs> we did. 50 gigabytes of data, 55 pounds of data, any trouble bringing all that back? Physically or? You know, it's kind of a, we thought it was fun. Maybe that'd be funny to the readers, but what we got to Hong Kong, which was about a half month ago, on our first tour, we were so inundated with paper materials which we found laughable that they were coming from digitized developers that they obviously got a lot of what we talk about but they still aren't getting all of it because they're still dropping five pounds of paper off but they couldn't even give enough memory sticks or websites to access or uh, in limited instances we got CDs or DVDs to uh, supplement the paper since they weren't giving us uh, that we actually went to a FedEx office in Hong Kong and each shipped uh, a substantial box back to ourselves. And I believe the cost was about you know, $60 uh, for the slow delivery. But we figured since we weren't going to be home for a week, it was okay to send it there yeah, over, over five days. Um, and, and after we did that, over the, the, the second half of the trip, we accumulated just as much paper from the other stops. Um, so before we left, we actually compared uh, who had what from which stop. We figured all we needed was one from each stop, not six from each stop, because even though there were six of us. Um, and we split it up and secured it back. We did have one gentleman who uh, took a bring an enormous bag with him, uh, rather than two bags, and when he started to load it with these, these brochures and, and, uh, and massive uh, amount of paper that his suitcase was over the international uh, travel limits. Uh, and routinely, he would have to check in and pay seventy-five dollars extra each stop for for his uh, for the right to take his extra heavy bag with him to the next stop. Uh, so uh, we ended up letting him digest his top of uh, of all the paper. But still, uh, uh, bringing the gigabytes back was obviously easy. Uh, it was in the form of, of uh, digital photographs and videos, mm-hmm. um, some in the form of, of DVDs and CDs, some in the form of memory sticks. Uh, but they were not familiar with the concept of memory sticks over there for the most part. They were on found it from stores, but none of the, the bigger people in that were using them uh, or uh, were willing to transfer files to them. They were certainly willing to burn a DVD or CD for us uh, in the case of the one actively handed that out, but um, bring a gigabyte back, gigabyte back with easy, the 55 pounds literally, because it was about a 30 pound box, we, we shipped to ourselves and then brought that another 25 pounds. Well, 
the flannel goes. Okay. What is the yeah, meaning? You probably look at it once, by the way. What are the main things that a lot of Americans are concerned about going to Asia, and China specifically, is protecting their intellectual property? Were the people that you met with concerned about protecting the intellectual property that they exposed you to? No, uh, no and on the contrary, we were stunned when the uh, deputy, uh, the deputy, uh, what the commissioner? What do they call the uh, trade office? I think the Chinese government official who is the deputy minister mm-hmm. of science, the deputy minister of science and technology, mm-hmm. uh, based in Beijing, for the central Chinese government, mm-hmm. um, and we weren't sure what to expect from this gentleman because he was such a departure from the other business types of, of people that were posting us or, or receiving us. He just brought online one of the smartest buildings in the planet in Beijing uh, where it's got uh, building automation, hyperconnectivity, uh, a digital signage strategy from the parking garage to the rooftop deck. It's got a green energy sensitive element of substance to it. Uh, it was all built with uh, experimental dollars by the Chinese government as a showcase that was intended to be open and debugged in time for the 2008 Olympics in central Beijing. And when we found out about the building, um, there was a Carnegie Mellon professor who consulted with the Chinese government on the energy efficiency of the building, which is how we found out about it. And by the way, addresses whether it's an opportunity for companies here to consult uh, over there. Nonetheless, uh, when we received, were received by the deputy minister, we were uh, uh, communicating through an interpreter, uh, and he gave us uh, over an hour and a half of time as well as a tour of the building, uh, and there was nothing off limits, and there was no questions that were off limits. Um, and after a little while, we asked him what other uh, American or governmental officials that he had ever received in his capacity as Deputy Minister of Oregon after the bill, and he said that we were the first that ever called on him, which blew us away, that he had received uh, his peers from Switzerland, mm-hmm. Italy, Korea, Malaysia, Sweden, and Canada, if I remember them all right, but never anybody from the United States. Uh, and that he was glad that he called with the, you know, called with the way he answered the question. So we were stunned at that as a, a perfect, good working example of how open people were with us. Uh, there were certain places, Hong Kong, uh, the developer of uh, what, we, what, what we have since tagged as the world's uh, most comprehensive and impressive buildings operations and command center that first didn't allow us in. Um, but we sort of worked the system and, and ultimately got it. Same in the UK. Uh, they had the, the, the Switch rebuilding. We uh, didn't want to uh, advertise all the advancements they had made in their property, but by networking through real estate circles, we were able to access 100% of the, of the, the planning and execution of all these projects. 
homeowners, it sounds like a lot of the real estate developers are trying to keep a lot of this close to the best. I think they want to understand what the angle is. Why are you asking? Mm-hmm. I think it's more security driven than IP driven. Um, okay. In the post 9-11 age. Um, that's just my bad instinct on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's an IP ownership issue. Okay. We've talked about a lot. Um, Obviously, the government played a big role in a lot of the stuff you've, you've seen in Asia. What role did the government play there? And do you see the government playing any kind of comparable role in things that you do here? I'm not a government basher, and uh, I don't want to inadvertently stir things up, but I will say on the record that I think our government has a fair attitude uh, to technological investment and investment is one of the major stumbling blocks to what used to be U.S.-led and worldwide government. Uh, and if we if we lose our edge, or if we will if we have lost our edge, or if we do lose our edge. It can be directly tied back to a lack of vision and a lack of funding in technological innovation and a breakdown of our educational system. And that's where the difference was in all the places that we went in Asia. We went for a real estate education and came back with a whole new appreciation for our uh, tech spending and educational innovation driven by the local government in each one of these countries. Last time, we talked a little bit about education, and I'm kind of an education supporter. What kinds of things did you see in school that you think would be helpful for us to do here? The entire country of Malaysia, as an example, operates according to uh, what they call uh, the Malaysia Smart School, uh, I think it's I think it's MSSA, and I forget what the stands for. But it's an initiative that was put in place a few years ago by the Malaysian government, where all eight to ten million children in that country uh, go through a fully integrated smart school education program where. There's direct real-time connectivity between the administrators, the educators, the parents, and the students. Um, they're completely connected 24-7, uh, and all of their work uh, is done with uh, laptop computers, smartphones, uh, local area networks, um, and open uh, communication so that uh, there's no lag time uh, in a lesson plan uh, execution or the parents can go online anytime and see exactly where their student is at any moment in time in the process of uh, their education. Um, but that's an entire, what was significant is that 
initiative itself that they're 100 percent of the country's uh, county's population is going through this program, which uh, may or may not be perfect, but I'm sure it's getting better over time as they work within its, its benefits and, and, and constraints. Uh, the entire country of uh, the population is, is enduring it. Uh, we went to a few private schools in China uh, where, again, schools were 100% Wi-Fi and the educators were being educated uh, in digital lesson plans so that they in turn could teach digital lesson plans to their students. The students themselves were connected to local area, area network and issued uh, laptops in the second grade. So instead of creating books, they were carrying laptops. Uh, kindergarten, you learn how to you learn how to get the first grade, you learn how to type in second grade, you get your, your laptop. And before the fifth grade, uh, you begin to self-program uh, a web page about yourself. Sites, sounds, graphics, the works. When you pass on to the next grade, you take your site with you, and even though you now have a different set of teachers, that project stays with you and you enhance it uh, to the extent determined uh, necessary by the fifth grade. And in sixth grade, you take it with you, seventh grade, you take it with you. Each year, you enhance it. Uh, you can imagine the seniors in high school, uh, what they learned about programming and code uh, and what they were able to do for themselves uh, in terms of uh, collaborating, in terms of programming, in terms of uh, uh, digital ability. Um, it's a whole different state of curriculum. It's a whole different state of connectivity. Uh, it's a much more aggressive move to connect uh, the future vision. Uh, Digital generation with uh, with the current generation, uh, with the current generation. It's a whole different approach. In Korea, the norm is to go to school and you know, study at night and every day. The students ordinarily get three to three and a half hours of sleep, and there is shame, peer uh, and societal shame uh, on the students that don't. Uh, asking to that uh, unwritten norm uh, that all the students uh, are studying every bit of, of you know, going to school and studying every bit of vacation for the last day. It's a phenomenal thing. Uh, their summer vacation is not the same as with our summer vacation. Their school during the summer, although the patterns do change. Uh, the funding is different. Uh, everything about the education is different. They're all required in the five languages. Um, sounds great if you're an engineer, computer programs don't. How about the writers, the artists, you know, those kinds of things? It's interesting. In Korea, in Seoul, uh, a full 2% of your project construction budget has to be allocated to uh, art, to the, uh, to, the, to the display of art that need a very rigorous uh, set of standards that are controlled by the city. So that every medium and large building, I think there are small buildings that are accepted from it, uh, are spending a full 2% of their budget on world-class art. Uh, in the form of museums, statues, sculptures, um, progressive art, uh, wall size art. You can't believe it's done with every building in full hand. Yeah, I guess just take a step back though. How about the educational realm as well? 
Has your trip changed your approach to governmental incentive services? In other words, it sounds like you saw things at a different level from using the cliche at a different level, but have your thoughts changed there at all? No, um, the governmental incentive services component of Optimize uh, really caters to uh, uh, the manufacturers and the cor corporate operators to have a formula uh, that is valued by state governments within the United States, and that primarily is full-time employment, uh, what we call FTEs, or FTEs and equivalent, uh, and what the pay ranges are for those FTEs, um, and or capital expenditures, how much they spend to set up their headquarters operation or their call center or their data center or their manufacturing or their warehouse distribution center, whatever it happens to be. If you have a lot of both, uh, you're going to do pretty darn well in governmental incentives and world. If you have one or the other, you still could do quite well. Um, and we'd like to cater to a customer that's interested in, in maximizing those other things, that component of the overall uh, analysis of, of a possible move to handle work. Uh, relocation in our state put scenario. But it really doesn't have that much to do with the travel data or the development desires. Okay. Um, you mentioned one of your articles after coming back. The decision maker in the Asian countries you saw was different. How is it different? If a younger person, 40 years old or younger, has a rule of thumb uh, that really did grow up uh, with the first wave of digital or digitized technology and is very comfortable using digital tools and seeking out innovative new tools uh, that will make them either more efficient or more effective or both. Um, and they're then using those tools uh, for business. So, so now you have a digital age decision maker using digital or digitized tools to make digital decisions for a digital, the future digital generation, therapy. And that's a paradigm that makes sense to us. Uh, in other places, such as the United States, and this is said with all due respect to the older decision makers uh, in our communities, uh, many are still analog age decision makers who have not yet fully embraced digital technology and or know-how, and are therefore using analog tools as analog decision makers to make non-digital decisions for the same digital generation our kids that they have. And that to me is the definition of digital divide. And it's why the gap will get bigger before it gets smaller. When you talk about analog, analog tools, non-digital decisions, can you give me a specific example there so people know what you're talking about? Sure. Um, there, there are several uh, decision makers who are still not in the United States, who are uh, not using email, are not using uh, PDAs or Blackberries, um, who are not willing uh, to accept a digital document. If they do uh, get a digital document, the first thing they do is they print it out and reduce it back to an analog piece of paper. Um, 
they're not interested in, in further innovation, but rather relying on uh, all the great things that they were able to use leverage to get them to where they were. Now they're in a position of authority and decision-making uh, uh, activity uh, and nearing either retirement or pension or uh, getting paid big money to be there. The first thing that we experience uh, them doing is uh, ceasing whatever innovation activity got in there in the first place and becoming much more conservative by nature. So again, uh, they're about preservation and or longevity and not about innovation uh, and, and connecting with the digital generation that will ultimately replace them and drive the business world forward. Um, they're really catering to yesterday's generation, not the modern generation. Oh, you mentioned that there are other cultures where innovation is more commonplace than normal. In which cultures? Uh, let's start with Singapore, uh, which was named the most innovative country in the world. By whom? Chinese? Yes. I'm not doubting it. Yeah, I'm doubting it. It's the most. This survey came out for the last five or ten years and it's considered to be the worldwide authority on country by country analysis of, of innovation. I mean, okay. you know, on a cross sectional criteria. Um, in the United States has always been first until this last. And it's funny because we were en route from uh, China to Singapore and we picked this up in the newspaper and read this. So it's kind of ironic. Uh, this is a Chinese newspaper. But the United States fell from first to fifth. And I believe second to fourth was Finland, Denmark, and Sweden. Um, uh, so those are, are four or five places uh, that I think you could consider to be. Uh, innovation driven. I would also throw out South Korea, uh, Seoul in particular, as innovation and R&D driven. Uh, they know they can't compete by resources with the United States or with uh, Central Europe or with China, and they know they can't compete in manpower, in manufacturing manpower with China. So they need a different niche to be viable. Uh, so their niche is innovation uh, in engineering and uh, in R&D intelligence, much the way Japan emerged as a world power after World War II without having uh, comparable uh, resources and or uh, natural resources in our, in our manpower to the rest of the world. Uh, they relied on innovation uh, to secure their place in the world order and exactly what Korea has done that they pretty much left Japan in the dust. Um been a lot of places, learned a lot of interesting things. What are the local implementations that have come out of your trips to Asia and these other things that you learned? And you're gonna be working on this project, mm -hmm. looking for funding. Anything else? Uh we've actually begun to you know, it, it's a it's a never ending quest to self-educate into the issues and implications from the transition to that of a, 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 an analog information age to that of a digital information age. Um, I don't know if it's, you know, an analog economy or uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, we don't stop uh, and it's not entirely based on our travel. Um, but because we've uh, 
learned enough, digested enough, analyzed enough uh, to be more than most other people have, and we've begun to offer uh, technology consulting services uh, to other real estate oriented entities. Um, so we're turning into a profit center, if you will. The other thing uh, I would say is uh, we've, we've stumbled upon this, this travel niche uh, where there's an appetite uh, of commercial real estate practitioners covering a broad range of specific um, uh, roles within the industry or, or, or expertise within the industry that have uh, the means, the wherewithal, and the interest to travel to Asia and see a lot of what we saw, but don't have the time to research it or organize it for themselves. Um, and so we've begun a series of tours, travel, driven, uh, best practices, tours, uh, that we're going to expand. Uh, we're going to go back to Asia in the fall for technology best practices. We're also uh, launching an industrial best practices tour of Asia, and we're also doing a next-gen technology tour in both uh, Dubai uh, and in Europe. So those are all separate trips. Those are all for profit, um, educationally based. Uh, we'll take anywhere from 25 to 30 people, all paying customers, all uh, from a healthy cross-section or subset of commercial industry practices. So that the, the networking within that group is maximized uh, and, uh, and the trip doesn't get too single science in the total. Very interesting. Um, how much have you traveled abroad? before you start making trips to Asia? You know, to me it's considerable. Um, more than most, but not as much as, as others. Uh, I've been Greece uh, on two occasions. I've been to uh, Western and Central Europe on several occasions. I've been to uh, Iceland on one occasion. Uh, been to Mexico on several occasions. Certainly Canada on several occasions. It was my first trip to Asia. Uh, Although I travel to most other places on the planet. Mm -hmm. Okay. And all of these were primarily business, pleasure? Um, most of were pleasure prior to this. A few were for business, but most were for, for pleasure. Travel through Asia. Did you learn any of the languages? Mandarin? Not much. Uh, it, it's surprising. Either it's pleasantly surprising or disturbingly surprising, depending on your perspective, and how commonplace English as a language is in the major business hubs in Asia. Um, most of the kids that have become adults and decision makers uh, were under the, uh, uh, the education plan that they had to learn five distinct and separate languages. Um, there are five different active dialect of Chinese alone, and that's considered one language, not five. The other four may be Japanese, uh, Korean, English, and Latin, as an example, or, or Spanish. There's tend to be very popular given the, the Hispanic, uh, the growth of the Hispanic demographic uh, worldwide, uh, which makes some sense, both in the United States as well as abroad. Um, so speaking English over there, uh, in the big cities, really wasn't an issue 
Uh, in Japan, all the signs now are in both Japanese and English for the most part. Um, uh, and of course, we were using people on the ground locally that we knew in advance were going to be able to help us bridge that gap. So we didn't have to learn a whole lot. Just a few words to be culturally sensitive, uh, which is very important. Yeah. It's a reason so much of a disadvantage. Um, didn't help you, but it hurt you. It could have helped, and you. The, the first trip, I really felt like a hand Asian experience, uh, mm-hmm. not having been there before. Mm-hmm. The second time around, it occurred to me that we flew United, we stayed at the Grand Hyatt, uh, we drank Starbucks, or Starbucks everywhere. <laughs> uh, and then we went back to the airport and we did it all over again, um, but we didn't have much of a culturally uh, driven Asian experience and I was concerned that our main customers would, would not be happy. Uh, on the contrary, because none of them had ever been there before, they felt like I felt on the first trip, this is amazing. Well, it's the best trip of my life and, and uh, you know, they had the same reaction of euphoria that I had the first time. So, uh, I think it's important to keep your perspective on on things and know that if you want a cultural trip to China, the trips that we're offering are probably not going to be them. Uh, you know, we're not going to sell them as such. Um, um, part of the reason I ask the question is just there are some people who fly all over the world and stay the places you do, do the things you do, and they think they're great international business people. And it's just business is going to be the context of culture. And so the thing is, if you ignore the culture, you can get into trouble. So it's just, you know, there's a balance there how much time you have to invest in its own time. Trying to get people to pay some attention to it. That's the most important thing. But if you ignore it, you can screw yourself up as well. You mentioned the ranking by country. Where do you think Chicago ranks in terms of well, digital space? Our research does suggest that Chicago belongs uh, on the, you know, uh, on the top list, uh, meaning, uh, they, it's on the top 10 or 12, uh, communities or cities in America, uh, where there's critical mass of both digital demand and, and digital, uh, entitlement and digital driven, uh, government. Uh, on some meaningful level, all these are important components ultimately uh, to acceptance of any type of, uh, of business or, or marketplace or, or real estate, as we're suggesting, uh, we have. So I think Chicago is right up there. Chicago is still held back by a couple of things, uh, union activity, uh, antiquated zoning laws, uh, an intense level of politics. <laughs> in the city, in the city limits, uh, in aging infrastructure. What kind of aging infrastructure is it? Uh, roadways, uh, electrical, uh, distribution infrastructure, uh, for sewer lines, it's all, it was all built in the, in the 1950s with a 30 year shuffle. But I mean, supposedly Chicago is supposed to be one of the crucial intersection points of the internet. Correct. And, and it is. Benefit? Absolutely. What's the benefit? Well, uh, the, the benefit uh, is 
an aggregation of digitally competent, uh, digitally uh, desirable, innovation-driven users wanting to reside here mm -hmm. to take advantage of that existence. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a, uh, an inflow of newly graduated digitally titled next-gen type uh, workers or, or uh, workforce. Uh, uh, and of course companies want to come here to harvest from that. Um, both of those are derivatives of having that crossroads, if you will, here in the Chicago area. Okay. Um, how much have you studied? Foreign language, cultures, international business, that kind of Not nearly enough. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I studied business, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. uh, I am a student of my game, and I spend an enormous amount of time studying what is specific. Uh, ongoing education uh, in business general uh, stuff like negotiations or um, rise, the rise of the rise of the creative class by Richard Florida is a, is a great book and talks about uh, what businesses will be successful in the future and why and the amount of catering to what he defines as the creative class. Uh, studying the knowledge economy, trying to understand the implications <clears throat> for the rest of my business life in your future, um, so I know how to both deal with it and try to make money uh, as a result of it. Um, so I do study business quite a bit. Cultures, to the extent that uh, I can be effective when I travel, um, foreign languages, not, not as much. And I know that you are actively engaged with a couple specific real estate associations. How can other local business people benefit from either knowing about these associations, your role in those associations? Is there a benefit to local business people to get involved with these associations you're a part of? Well, I need to break into two, two groups. Real calm people should take an interest in it if they're interested in the intersection of commercial real estate and technology. Uh, it has become the worldwide gold standard for that intersection and the education that emanates from that. Um, uh, that manifests itself in the form of a conference uh, in the United States once a year in June. This year it's in Anaheim. Uh, and I invite people to visit the Wilcom website and get themselves familiar with uh, both the, uh, the convention that will occur here shortly, as well as the end uh, of the, uh, the weekly newsletter uh, that's generated by its provider. Uh, consistently, I am told by people who get a lot of e-newsletters, uh, this is the only one they get that has real content that they can use. <laughs> um, and I've only heard that a hundred times uh, about this. And I have no economic or vested interest in this company. I'm reporting as a, as a third party on it. As far as the record, yeah. Is it not Realcom that um, initiated these trips to Asia? We branded the trip to Asia Realcom for continuity and credibility purposes, mm -hmm. uh, but it's really a standalone business that I set up with okay. the operators of Realcom. Okay. 
Yeah, you should. That's our question. Yeah, I saw it on the real comment site. It's computer. Well, I don't want to trick people to know if it was a real comment or optimized. They didn't know. You should know for the record that Optimize is a real estate services company. And the development entity that formed with other principals who are also involved in real comment is called One Bridge Partners. I think I may have told you a lot of times. I'm not sure. Uh, does one bridge partners have a website as well? Or no? It's one of the construction. Uh-huh. Okay. You started in the south. Yeah, you know, people like to be able to click through and say, okay, yeah. so, I'm not big on emphasizing one or the other. I'm not, I'm not big on emphasizing one bridge. Well, I'm not just where I'm making my living as I'm going to focus on it. But I wanted you to understand the definition of the It's very interesting. It's my fault. Well, it's just complicated. The other answer to your question about local business people benefiting with air and SLRs are both uh, very uh, prestigious, not for profit commercial real estate associations serving the greater Chicago and uh, commercial marketplace. AIR stands for Association of Industrial Real Estate Brokers, uh, and I strongly recommend. As the president of there, uh, any business owner needing to consult or use a commercial real estate broker um, to help them manage uh, their real estate moves uh, to use or consult an air broker. SIOR stands for Society of Industrial and Office Realtors, and the Chicago chapter is the largest chapter uh, of a uh, international organization. Uh, based in Washington, D.C., um, where um, you have to go through a very rigorous qualification and application process just to get in, and it's even more rigorous to stay in once you're in. Uh, they say it's the top 1% of all commercial real estate practitioners uh, are eligible for membership within SILR. So, uh, again, SILR is more of a local, regional, national, international outlet for local business people with real estate uh, transactional needs uh, in areas specific to industrial users, uh, warehouse manufacturing, vacant land, assembly, R&D uh, here in the Chicago land area. Uh, the both are very good organizations that I'm lucky to have been affiliated with. I'm just curious, you mentioned Chicago is the largest SILR chapter. How is it bigger than New York and L.A.? I mean, here they've got more real estate there, and they should be bigger. That's a great question. Um, the roots of SLR uh, are that it started as an industrial real estate uh, organization. It was founded in Chicago by the federal government as part of the World War II munitions effort. Uh, so, first of all, it has roots in Chicago, even though its headquarters is no longer in Chicago. Number two, it started as SIR, Society of Industrial Realtors. Uh, and it wasn't until the 1980s uh, that we actually uh, changed the name, uh, added the O, and brought in office practitioners as members. Consequently, uh, the evolution of the, of the organization has been in places where there's been significant concentrations of industrial real estate, not office real estate. Uh, so we'll have a much bigger chapter in Northern New Jersey than we will in Midtown Manhattan. We'll have a much bigger uh, chapter in the Inland Empire area of Greater Los Angeles than we will in downtown Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Is, 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 is. Mm-hmm. 
I've tried to learn about your involvement in technology, your trips to Asia, you know, a couple other personal things as well. Is there anything else that's important to know about optimized Asian trips, either past or upcoming, or any other personal things that make sense here? Have I missed anything? I want to compliment you on your preparation. Uh, the questions that you would love to the questions that you asked, the comprehensiveness of the interview. Um, I'm very impressed and uh, appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to be here. I hope I do have something to put together a couple, couple, couple of words. Is this going to take some time? Uh, <laughs> I understand. Um, uh, and if I think of something else, uh, I'll let you know that you did such a comprehensive job. I'm not sure what I'm going to answer. So. Okay. Cool. Let's do the question again. No, I mean, there's always, what else? 